In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Fallen Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede. So we'll have to be competing in our prayer with the fireworks for Halloween outside making uh, their explosive noises. Hopefully they've died out by this point. But I'd like for us to try and take our cue in our prayer this evening from the season that surrounds us. And here I'm thinking not so much about the decorations and the pumpkins and the, the costumes, but rather the fact that it's darker, that nature is preparing for winter, it is dying. The leaves are falling. And St. Josemaria, in the first book that he wrote as a young priest, made a very brief consideration precisely on that point. Have you seen the dead leaves fall in the sad autumn twilight? Thus souls fall each day into eternity. One day the falling leaf will be you. This is a consideration not meant to scare us with the reality of our death. But many saints and many people throughout the history of the church and just many people who are seeking wisdom have understood that it is a very healthy and worthwhile thing to remind ourselves that our life has a limit, that we don't control it as much as we would like to think that we do, that our life is fragile, it's not something that we can give to ourselves, it is something that we receive. The fact of our death does many things, but one of the things we want to pray about now is just reminding ourselves of this reality. It's surrounding us in the natural world. Is that our life is a gift and we want to be grateful for it and not let it slip through our fingers. Let it pass because we weren't living it on purpose with meaning and a goal. But not only do we want to recognize just the biological fact of death and what that can tell anyone who just has the common sense to recognize the fact of it, but we want, precisely because we're trying to pray, to lift our eyes from the pressure of the present moment, to go beyond the fact of our deaths, whenever that may be, to the hope that we have as Christians. To remind ourselves of what exactly do we hope in? What do we say that we believe every Sunday when we pronounce the creed? And what we say is that we believe that Jesus is going to come again. Now, unfortunately, a number of small little kind of sects and groups and kind of different parts of the U.S. and South America and different places have kind of hijacked this belief and making it something weird and strange with kind of rapture and all these other peculiar beliefs. But it is at the heart of Jesus' message that he will come again 
and recreate the entire universe so that it be a faithful reflection of God's love and a perfect means for experiencing that love. He will judge everyone who has ever lived and the result of that judgment will be either eternal life or eternal death. And he will recreate the cosmos in the process, giving all of us resurrected bodies so that in a new created body, we can participate in this new creation. In a few words, that's what we believe is the end of this story that all of us are living. This is where it's headed. Whatever the divergences and particularities of our own particular stories, we are part of a common story. And we are headed to something that we right now, because of our Christian faith, can know with certainty. We believe that what happened to Jesus after he was killed on the cross, because we have been baptized into him, is going to happen to us. And not in a hidden way, the way it's happened so far in our Christian faith, but in an absolutely self-evident, undeniable way for the entire universe. So as Christians, we believe, and we say this every Sunday when we recite the Creed, when we read the Gospels and we hear Jesus telling us the message of our faith, we believe that we know how things are going to end in an encounter with truth and with love. The question for me to ask myself right now in my prayer, though, is shouldn't this really affect me more? Shouldn't I understand the story of my life more in terms of where I know it's going? It's where I'm headed. And if it's where I'm headed, then what actually matters? What is important? What am I including and giving importance to that maybe doesn't have that importance? St. Paul said to the first Christians, if we have followed Christ for this life only, we are the most pathetic of all people. If Jesus has not risen from the dead and is not returning, then let us eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we might die. I think in order for you and I to have genuine hope, which is the motor of our life of prayer, our Christian life, in order to have a genuine hope, we need to remind ourselves occasionally that we should not sever our Christian life now from eternal life. Because as St. Paul tells us, if we do that, we are the most pathetic of all people. Our Christian faith is not simply one more life philosophy among other available options, and it's more recommendable because it actually proves to be nicer. Maybe it does. Our, our, our faith is very life-affirming. But it's life-affirming because it is eternity-affirming. It is new creation-affirming. Without this conviction, without this faith, 
we risk drowning in a glass of water. In a small cup-sized ocean of momentary anxieties, fears, self-doubts, mistaking superficial pleasures and excitements and enthusiasms with the soul-filling joy that God has created us for. And this is the only life that we get. You will never be younger than you are today. And that realization, again, is not to induce in us some sort of (gasps) anxiety. Well, maybe if it does, as long as it's helpful, to then turn us around into an attitude of gratitude, rejecting that temptation that all of us feel to a bit of superficiality. Um, Heaven is where we are headed, but we also know that that is something that can be rejected. It can be rejected because evil is real. And as we're thinking about these ultimate things, these things of eternity, we need to acknowledge this as well. We We are not living in some sort of universe where Everything is is all fine and hunky-dory. Evil is real. Hell is a possibility. And it is a possibility because in order for us to love, in order for us to say yes, we have to have the capacity to say no. And hell, as we believe a Christian, is not so much physical fire as it is eternal regret knowing that there's no going back and being perfectly, absolutely alone. The horror of having chosen oneself throughout life and because of that choice, actually receiving it, being left with it. This is a great mystery because, you know, as we do so often in our prayer and even now as we're looking to our Lord who contemplates us in the tabernacle, this Lord who is love, I think there's a part of us that kind of rebels even against the existence of evil, the possibility of hell, because how could a loving God allow it to exist? Wouldn't he prevent us from even having the possibility of sinning? How could it even be an option? And in thinking about this, I went back to this well-known English mystic, Julian of Norwich, who lived in the Middle Ages. And she lived in a time in, in, in England, in Norwich, in, in the UK, of great turmoil. She was living in a time of plague, of social chaos and wars. And she herself was experiencing severe life-threatening illness. She thought she was about to die herself. And in that situation, she had a series of visions mystical visions of Jesus. And in one of them, she tells how she herself was wrestling with this issue. Well, this issue. If sin is so horrible, if evil destroys us and causes so much harm in the lives of other people, why does God allow it? Why doesn't he prevent it? And in the book that she wrote, which is actually the first book written in English by a woman, 
called The Revelations of Divine Love. In that book, she describes a little bit this experience. She says, in my folly, before this time, the time of the visions, I often wondered why, by the great foreseeing wisdom of God, the onset of sin was not prevented. For then I thought all should have been well. Very reasonable. (laughs) If God had prevented sin, all should have been well. This impulse of thought was something I should have avoided, but nevertheless I mourned and sorrowed because of it without reason and discretion. But Jesus, who in this vision informed me of all that is needed by me, answered with these words and said, It was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. These words were said most tenderly, showing no manner of blame to me, nor to any who shall be saved. Jesus' response in this vision is to encourage her, and through her testimony, you and I, to have hope in this all-powerful love. But more than hope, we need the kind of wisdom that arises from prayer, a savoring and an experience at a very intimate and personal level of that love. That personal experience, that wisdom, give rise to us of why it makes sense to entrust ourselves to this love. That no matter the horror, no matter the crimes and the sins and the things that shake our faith to the core and discourage us, that what Jesus says is true. Somehow in his providence that we can never fathom or understand, all of this is part of a plan and all of it shall be well for those who are saved in him. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. Our minds cannot comprehend the trillions and trillions and trillions of factors and influences and actions that all flow together to create the warp and woof of human history, that fabric of interconnection, one thing pulling and relying on another. Our minds can't even understand what's going on in our own lives, much less human history as a whole. And thus all Jesus can really say to us is, it was necessary. In other words, you cannot understand, trust what I have done, trust who I am. Lord, fill us with this hope. Because it's the sort of hope that needs to underpin and give a real reason for those little bitty hopes that we have each day. You know, the hope that makes it, you know, I have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. The hope that I have a reason of trying to work a little bit harder, to not just utterly give in to a desire for comfort, distraction, and pleasure, to really try and develop my character and my personality in service to others. Why should I be doing that? 
because it's kind of hard and sometimes I don't feel like it. Well, the reason should not be because I'm afraid or because I want to live up to other people's expectations or because I feel guilty if I don't. You can try to live off of those reasons. They might have a certain effectiveness in inverted commas, but they will leave you hollow. You will have a fractured self in which your sense of duty, your understanding of life, and your emotional experience will all be disconnected, disjointed. But the virtues of faith, hope, and love integrate us. They make us whole. They make us one. So that what we know and what we choose and what we look forward to and what we love is all part of the same desire, the same heart, the same soul. This is why our praying and contemplating about our individual and our common future is not mere theological speculation, interesting musings, on a Wednesday evening, but something that needs to fuel, strengthen, and encourage us in all of our daily and indeed bigger struggles. At the end of Scripture, the last book of the Bible towards the very end, St. John, and this vision of the end times, inspired by the Holy Spirit who pulled back the curtain of what awaits us, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The reason the sea was no more in his vision is because in the Bible the sea is an image of death, of chaos, of disorder. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the throne of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Those words that the one seated on the throne says to John are words that God is saying to us right now. He gives us anticipations of it in the sacraments. The miraculous transformation of bread and wine into the resurrected body and blood of Jesus Christ. See, I am making all things new. Healing us in the sacrament of reconciliation. See, I am making all things new. Elevating our sufferings and our our joys and our dreams to the level of grace is already that new creation, God with us, in the midst of our frailties and our sinfulness and our failures. He is, in a very real, albeit hidden way, making all things new. And therefore, it's worthwhile to love. It's not a desperate act. It's worthwhile. 
to love as Christ loves, putting all of our heart and all of our energy into the reality of the life that we have before us, because this reality, this life is going to be redeemed. I always get a little bit passionate about this, and I feel the importance of kind of emphasizing it because it is so baked into our cultural imagination, an image of heaven that is upstairs, downstairs, right? It's like we were going to be hoovered up into some sort of ethereal, you know, dimension, and everything that we know about this life, body and tree and food and friends, and other, that's going to get left behind, and we're just going to be some sort of luminous, I don't know, And unsurprisingly, I think people find that not very inspiring. (laughs) It's not very attractive. It's not something that gives hope. I just think it's something that people just look away from. But our Christian faith is a faith in new creation, resurrection, the spiritualization of what we already in this life experience as desirable, as beautiful, as pleasant, as passionate the things that people write poetry about, what artists are always trying to grasp and represent in their work, that is going to be made perfectly available and spiritualized for us for eternity without becoming old or tedious or boring. Of course, the challenge in all of this is that our imagination falls incredibly short and it's very hard. It's kind of like bumping up against a wall our eyes glaze over. In 2001, uh, a fellow in Minnesota wrote a novel called Peace Like a River. It got a very good reception. It's a brilliant novel. I highly recommend it. And in that novel, uh, which was, got a lot of surprising critical acclaim at the time, he gives, well, this is kind of a spoiler alert here, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, I won't tell you when this happens in the novel. A representation of a near-death experience. Someone who is projected forward. It's kind of a magical realism almost moment in the novel. It's projected forward into this future that awaits us. And I'd just like to read one of the moments of his descriptions of it because it's probably one of the best contemporary descriptions I've seen of trying to understand how our sensual experience and spiritual experience will come together. He imagines that he's waking up and he comes out of a river and he's walking through a field, but he starts uh, having these completely different sensorial experiences and he's shot through with a desire to meet the one that he feels calling him. So he starts running. And now from beneath the audible came a low reverberation It came up through the soles of my feet. I stood still while it hummed upward, bone by bone. There is no adequate simile. The pulse of the country worked through my body until I recognized it as music, as language. And the language ran everywhere inside me like blood. And for feeling, it was as if through time I had been made of earth or mud or other insensate matter. Like a rhyme learned in antiquity, a verse blazed to mind. O be quick, my soul, to answer him, 
Be jubilant, my feet. And sure enough, my soul leapt dancing inside my chest, and my feet sprang up and sped me forward, and the sense came to me of undergoing creation, as the land and the trees and the beasts of the orchard had done some time long before. And the pulse of the country came round me, as the voices lifted at great distance and moved through me as I ran until the words came clear and I sang them a beautiful and curious chant. Is it fair to say that country is more real than ours? That its stone is harder, its water more drenching? That the weather itself is alert and not just background? Can you endure a witness to its tactile presence? And just to end with that last phrase, can we endure a witness to his tactile presence, is perhaps another way of bringing us back to Scripture, that we can understand the challenge that the writers of Scripture give to us, because they are witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Can you endure a witness to a tactile presence? The Jesus resurrected presence is more real than your presence. The weight that you feel right now and that somewhat uncomfortable bench that makes you very aware of being seated there. That presence that we're so self-evidently aware of is nowhere near as real is the presence that presides over us. This is our hope. This is the reality of the person who accompanies us. The person who looks at us in our moments of discouragement, who whispers in our ear when we hesitate and we doubt, all shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. It's worth embracing our cross. It's worth the effort to believe. It's worth the sacrifices that are involved in all of that. Because, Lord, we turn to you and we confess that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we look forward to your coming. We look forward to your coming not because we're fed up and dreary about this life, that we want it to end. But, Lord, we want you to, become, we want you to come precisely because we love this life. St. Maria had this very famous phrase that he invited all Christians to be people who passionately loved the world. And the reason that we are right in passionately loving the world is because this world is going somewhere. It's not headed for the rubbish heap. God's not going to wad it up like a paper, paper ball and cast it away at the end of time. He's going to take our efforts, our, our striving, our desires to love and to believe and to entrust ourselves to him, and he is going to transform it and make it eternal. Let's end our prayer by reminding ourselves that the time we have is a time to be grateful for. Dante, the great poet who represented the last things for all of Christian Europe did in his representation of Purgatorio, 
Purgatorio in his great epic poem, the Divine Comedy, is a mountain. And when Dante goes with Virgil and he goes up the mountain of Purgatory, he sees how all the people as they go up, they're, they're not in hell, they're, they're saved, but as they're going towards Paradiso, they're purifying themselves of their errors and mistakes and lack of virtue in this life. And as he's going up, the people who are being purified of sloth, of sleepiness, of just that earthly-bound, comfort-seeking, mealy-mouthed mediocrity that's always tugging at our sleeve. As he's going up and he's seeing these people being purified of that, he sees and he represents, this is all imaginative, but their purification consists of them running. And as they're running, they're all eagerly chanting out, time is love. Time is love over and over. And they're chanting it out because that's what they didn't realize in this life. And it's what God is surely inviting us to try and realize ourselves. Time is love. It is an opportunity and a chance to love. Let's take advantage of it. Let's not just occupy it. Let's not just endure it. Let's not just try to make it through it. But let's be the people who actually discover time is love and therefore live life to the full. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.